0: My name is Jenny Jones. Like Ryan said, I am one of the pastors here at Real Hope. And uh, we're really excited that you are here today because this is kicking off um, what the church has referred to as Passion Week or Holy Week. Um, and the word passion actually comes from the Latin word passio, which means literally means to suffer. So this is a week. The reason it's called Passion Week is because this is a week in which we take some time to reflect on the fact that Christ willingly went to the cross to suffer. Um, to bring salvation for his people, to pay for the sins of his people. And so that's what today kicks off. Um, And to help us as a church family to kind of reflect on the depth of this week, um, each one of our staff members is going to uh, take a day this week, and we are going to do a Facebook Live video um, in the morning and just talk about that particular day. What are the events that happened? Um, What does this mean for us? Um, What did it mean for uh, just really God's people? And then we're also going to give you a link to um, an online uh, resource that you can go to of ways that you can pray and and just questions you can think through throughout that day. And so we would love for you to join us um, in that journey. If um, you're like anti-social media or anti-Facebook or you're you know, like, oh, I just keep it to see pictures or whatever, that's totally fine. I would just encourage you, if you don't do anything, just spend five minutes and go to the Real Hope page and just uh, follow along with our staff, because we would love to celebrate that together as a church, um, and uh, to be able to do that virtually is really awesome. Um, so most people, whether you are a believer or not, you're really familiar with kind of the next weekend, right, this coming weekend, a week from today of what we're going to be celebrating, Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. But um, not very many people are very familiar with Palm Sunday, which is today. And I was sharing with our staff a few months back, which is how I got this amazing opportunity to be able to teach on Palm Sunday, that I, I love Palm Sunday, that it's absolutely one of my very favorite Sundays of the year. One of the reasons is because before we planted... Um, Real hope, and uh, before I became executive pastor, I was a kids pastor for 12 years. So I handled all of uh, the programming discipleship for uh, kids, ages birth through fifth grade. And almost every kids ministry across America does something with palm branches today, and has kids march around. And it was the cutest thing. I, I just looked forward to it every single time. But another reason why I absolutely love Palm Sunday is because, really. This is the Sunday in which it's kind of the climax of Jesus saying, hey, this is who I am. So all throughout Jesus's ministry, there's been kind of hints um, and things that he has said that have been leading up to really this moment. And so Palm Sunday is really the pinnacle of that time in which Jesus intentionally says, this is who I am. And then this is what it means for you. And so that's why I absolutely love Palm Sunday. And I wanted to try to give you like an analogy of what that might look like and what that really means. And so I brought this picture um, of a game show called The Dating Game. Right, I'm going to move here. Maybe you guys have heard of this. Have you ever heard of the dating game before? Right? Yeah. So this is a um, show that happened in the 60s and 70s. However, Saturday Night Live has kept us current on the dating game. They have done many sketches about the dating game. Um, But basically, here's the premise of the show. So you have this one person in this situation. It's a lady over here. She's on one side of the wall. You've got these three gentlemen on the other side of the wall. And throughout the game show, she is asking one of these guys questions to try to get to know them better, right? So you've got like, you know, uh, I don't know, contestant maybe? I don't know if they call them that. Uh, But like person one, person two, person three. And she's trying to get to know them. And then by the end of the show, she has to pick one of them. And that's the person that she's going to go on a date with. um, And that's the person that also walks out from behind this wall. So she gets to see them for the first time, right, what they look like. Now listen, I know you probably didn't come to church today thinking that I was going to do a dating game analogy on Palm Sunday, but stick with me on this because it really does illustrate what I'm talking about. Up until this point in Jesus's ministry, he had answered some questions about himself that led people to assume really who he was, and this resulted in the religious leaders being threatened, and kind of just waiting for an opportunity to accuse him of blasphemy. But what we're going to see in today's passage in Palm Sunday, or Jesus' triumphal entry, as it's also been called, this is the moment in which Jesus walks out from behind the wall. There's no more hints. There's no more leading answers. It's a walking out from behind the wall and saying, hey, listen, this is who I am. And who that is, is the Messiah, the one you guys have been waiting for. And so we're going to be in the book of Luke today, the gospel of Luke. Um, But before we dive into that passage, I want to give you some context to this particular narrative Um, throughout the Gospels, but then specifically in the book of Luke. Um, So this account of Jesus' triumphal entry, it's actually recorded in all of the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four Gospels. Um, And this this particular narrative is recorded in all four. That's not always the case, um, but this one is. And uh, because it's recorded in all four, we can actually go and look and see and read all the four different accounts Because each one has a little bit of a different angle, a little bit of a different lens, and it gives us really the fullest picture of what this looks like. Here's an example. The very name Palm Sunday is a great example of what I'm talking about. So, for instance, you're going to see when we read in Luke's account that Luke doesn't actually talk anything about tree branches or branches of any kind. But then Matthew and Mark, they talk about the crowd waving branches as Jesus is coming in, and then John specifically names those branches... Palm branches, hence Palm Sunday. All right, so what I wanted to do actually before we went in is I wanted to give you really the references of where you can find this story of the triumph entry in all of the different gospels. I really encourage you, and one of the things that we love to do here at Real Hope is we really encourage you to take notes. Like that's why we provide you pens and highlighters and all of that kind of stuff. And so um, I would encourage you to write these references down. In this afternoon, try to find some time where you can sneak away. It, it won't take you that long. And just read um, these other accounts. You're to I'm going to help you. I'm going to get you 25% there because we're going to read the Luke account this morning. So read the other three um, and uh, really just see kind of what this full picture um, looks like. But like I said this morning, we are going to read the Luke account. So we are going to be in Luke chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 40. Um, we have Bibles on the table. If you did not bring your Bible with you this morning, that is no big deal. We would love for you to use one of those. Um, like I said, Luke is one of the uh, Gospels. It's actually a third one. So right when you go into the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. That's where it is. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take the, uh, one of those Bibles home with you. Um, that's one of the reasons why we have them on the table. So we would love for you to continue to read God's Word throughout um, the week. All right, so let's re- what we're going to do is we're going to actually read this through. One complete time. So we're going to read the whole narrative through one complete time, and then we're going to go back and talk about what this means, okay? So let's start in verse 28. It says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, and I want you to underline this little phrase right here you will find a colt tied there. So underline that, highlight, um, whichever you want, but underline that phrase, which no one has ever ridden before. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, just as Jesus had told them, the Lord needs it. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And I want you to highlight that first part right there. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, underline what this Pharisees said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on this day, Underline this, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. And underline this phrase, because you did not recognize The time of God's coming to you. All right, so that's a lot of verses, a lot of underlines and all that kind of stuff. So what what does this all mean, right? Why did Jesus do this? this? Why was this entrance necessary? Why did it happen the way that it did? I mean, we're talking about like a borrowed donkey, people yelling at Jesus. Jesus is talking about stones crying out. Honestly, it all seems a little bit odd if you don't know the historical kind of context of it all and why things are happening the way that they do. So on the surface level, it really looks like a typical kind of entry of any king. Now, maybe not something typical that we've seen because we're not an Israelite. But at the time in ancient Israel, this was a very typical entry of a king that was returning from battle after he had a victory, hence a triumphal entry. And here's the thing, Jesus would have known that. And he would have known that the Jewish people would have known that. Because the thing you need to know about this whole entire narrative is that Jesus doesn't do anything accidentally. Jesus is very intentional about every action that he takes, every word that he says throughout this entire triumphal entry as he's going into Jerusalem. He is calculating every single one of His moves because he wants to get across to the Jewish people that here's the deal for the first time He is outwardly and publicly saying I am the one true king I am the Messiah you have been waiting for And so that's actually what our first point for today is going to be So if you're taking notes write this down here's the first point for today It's that Jesus is the one true king Jesus is the one true king Now, to help us see that, I want to tell you a little bit about the structure of the Gospel of Luke. So you can break the Gospel of Luke down into three different sections, okay? So the first section, it's really the kind of first eight chapters, and it really targets the mind. And what I mean by that when I say targets the mind, it pushes us as the reader to really think about and understand who Jesus is. And then you have the middle section, which is the next eight or nine chapters, and it really targets the will. It tells us how do we follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And then you have the last section. And it's made up of really like the last seven, eight chapters, and it targets the heart. Because it helps us understand really who we are by understanding what Jesus came to do. And this, the triumphal entry, is the very start of that last section. This is the very start of helping us understand who we are by understanding what Jesus came to do. And so here's the thing. Jesus knew that the Jewish people would be expecting this triumphal entry of a king, of the long-awaited Messiah. But he also knew that until the Jewish people understood that he was the one true King, really, until we understand that Jesus is the one true King, that he really cannot transform our lives. That life change and life transformation really is a product of understanding that Jesus is the one true King, And, and. Look at verses 37 and 38 with me again. So we we read them already, but let's look at them again. It says this. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And then I had you underline this first phrase. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Okay, so you're going to notice, if you look over here on the screen behind me, so this verse 38, it's, it's indented, right? Anytime you're reading in the New Testament and you come across a passage that's indented, what you need to know is it's indented because that means they're quoting an Old Testament scripture. But sometimes we don't always know that. It doesn't explicitly say, this is a quote from wherever. But that's a kind of a red flag, a key that we can know that this is a quote from the Old Testament. And sure enough, this is a quote from the Old Testament. When the crowd is actually joyfully cheering, what they're joyfully cheering is not just, this isn't just a phrase that they made up. This is directly quoting Psalm 118, specifically verses 25 and 26. And so I'm going to read it. You don't need to turn there, stay in Luke, but I'm to read what those verses say. And it says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of... Of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. So remember I talked about the triumphal entry is actually found in all of the Gospels? And how you can get this bigger picture? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, this section, when he's quoting what the people are shouting, they people are actually shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest. And the reason that I wanted to point that out is because the word Hosanna in Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was originally written in, it, it, it literally means save us. So we know that this is a direct quote from Psalm 118. Now, Here's what you need to know about Psalm 118 is that that is a psalm that is solely associated with the Messiah. Anytime it's talked about, anytime it's taught in Jewish culture, it is always taught with prophesying about the messiah always talked in association are taught in association with the messiah all right and so this is a psalm that would have been well known obviously amongst the jewish people to be referencing the long awaited messiah the savior the one that's coming from the line of king david the one that's going to save the jewish people from the oppression of the roman government so here we are Jesus is entering Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jewish people, and as he rides in, the crowd, they're not just welcoming him as any old king returning from triumphal battle. Their welcoming has the king. Their welcoming has the Messiah, the Savior, the one from the line of David that was going to rescue them and was going to vindicate them as God's chosen people. That's what they're chanting when Jesus walks in. And you have to understand that the Jewish people were obsessed with the concept of a Messiah. And here's why. Because all of the Old Testament scripture, all of Jewish recorded history, all of it is pointing to this Messiah. They're pointing toward this king. But the only illustration the Jewish people have ever had of a king is one that is militaristic and nationalistic in view and intent. So it's only natural that the Jewish people would think that that's what this Messiah is going to be as well. That that's going to be the intent of this Messiah, that this is going to be a Messiah that's going to come. He's going to use force. He's going to use aggression, even violence, if necessary, against the Roman government in order to free the Jewish people. So on one hand, yes, you have Jewish people, the Jewish people who are chanting and yelling Psalm 118, saying, yes, we recognize Jesus as the Messiah as he's writing in. But you have to understand that in the same in the same vein that they're chanting that and they're thinking that, in their mind they're also thinking he's about to come and he is literally, I mean, just heads are going to roll. That's what he's going to do. But here's the thing, that was not Jesus' intent. Like Jesus often did in his ministry, he completely redefines and changes the role of a Messiah and of a king. And we're going to see this in Luke's account of his triumphal entry. How Jesus's intentions are very different than the intentions of the Jewish people. Because here's the thing, in addition to Jesus being the one true king, And this is what the second point for the morning is going to be, is that Jesus is also the peacemaking king. Jesus is the peacemaking king. Look at verses 30 through 34 with me. It says this. It says, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Verse 32, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them, he being Jesus. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying it? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. All right, now let me ask you this. When you think or you picture a king especially riding in, like, returning home as, like, a war hero, basically, triumphantly entering into a city, what do you picture him riding on? Like a like a powerful, like, war horse, like a steed. Like, in my mind, it's like a Clydesdale or something. I think that's probably maybe because it's, like, the biggest horse I know. But in my mind, I think about him riding in as on this big, like, powerful war horse, this this steed, all right? But Jesus intentionally tells his disciples to go get him a colt. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells us that it isn't even actually like a young colt of a horse. It's a young colt of a donkey. A donkey that has never been ridden before. Now think about that for a minute. Now when our president is entering into a city... He comes in, what, in, like, 14, 15 long, like, bulletproof SUV motorcade, right? Like, everything, streets are shut down. Like, background checks are taken of, like, everybody that lives on his route, right? Or he's coming in on Air Force One, which is basically, like, you know, the West Wing in the sky. This is how he is. So this would be, like, if the President of the United States... Flies southwest like boarding group C into hobby rents like a 2000 Honda Civic or a bike and bikes in it's not royal it's not fancy but listen it is intentional on Jesus's part here's why let me read to you Zechariah 9:9 it says rejoice greatly daughter zion Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Then listen to this lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, Jesus, again, he's not doing anything by accident, he's intentional, telling his disciples to go get him a colt, a donkey. Because he's thinking about this prophecy of this Messiah from Zechariah 9-9 that was written centuries earlier. So it's not like this is something that was just written a few months before. Centuries earlier. And here's the thing. The Jewish people, they know this prophecy. So they should have been looking for a king on a donkey, but they forgot. Because in that moment, their emphasis is on a militaristic king over the need of a servant king. But Jesus knows what the need is. Jesus knows the prophecy. Jesus's intentions were different. Because the Jewish people of the day, they only saw this like very narrow focused lens. But Jesus saw the world from beginning to end. Jesus absolutely could have ridden in on like the biggest, baddest horse around, surrounded by an entire army of warriors. He could have ridden right to the middle, right to the center of Jerusalem, and in one battle just completely destroyed the Roman government. But here's the deal. That was not his intention. That was not his end goal. Jesus doesn't enter the city riding a war horse ready for battle against the Romans, but rather he comes as a peacemaking king. Because Jesus knows that he's going to bring salvation, not through physical conquest, but through self-sacrifice. And we see that Jesus's intentions were not to bring about a limited amount of freedom to one particular group for a limited amount of time in history. That's what the Jewish people were seeing, but that's not what Jesus was seeing. What Jesus was saying is he's like, hey, listen, I'm not coming here for militaristic rule. I'm not just coming here to kill a few Roman soldiers and to dethrone one political group. I'm coming here to defeat the very grip of death for all of humanity, for all of, man, for all of history, for all time. That's what I'm coming here to do. I'm coming here to be a peacemaking king. And here's the thing, because Jesus is a peacemaking king, because he is a humble king, you and I, we can trust him. He is not a king that will oppress you. He is not a king um, that will use you. Jesus even says about himself in Matthew, the book of Matthew in chapter 20, you know, he even says, hey, listen, the son of man, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve, and I came as a ransom for many. That's who Jesus is. That's the kind of king that he is. So you can trust that. Because you can trust that brings us to our last point for today, which is this, is that Jesus is your king. Jesus is the one true king. Jesus is a peacemaking king, but here's the good news for us today. It's that Jesus is your king. Look at verses 39 through 40. It says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus says back to them, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Listen, the reason the Pharisees and the crowd were so upset, the reason they were asking Jesus to rebuke his disciples is because that they realized that by Jesus coming in in such a public entrance, the same kind of public entrance of a triumphal king on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9-9, the crowd quoting, yelling Psalm 118, which was solely associated with the Messiah, they knew that basically Jesus was backing them into a corner. Essentially, Jesus was saying to them, hey, listen, you crown me as the one true king, which he knew they would never do, or you kill me as a sacrificial lamb, which many of us in this room know that that's what they were about to do. And here's the thing for us. It's that at some point we are going to find ourselves in the same crossroads as the Pharisee. And I hope one thing that you've picked up on as we've kind of gone through this account, I've said it multiple times, is that Jesus does nothing by accident. He is intentional about everything that he does. And listen, that's not just true for this particular narrative. That's true for your life and that's true for my life today. This, is, this narrative is an example of that. But that is still true of Jesus today. He does nothing in your life by accident. It is intentional. He is intentional about everything. And see, just as Jesus is calling the hand of the Pharisees, he loves you enough that at some point he's going to call your hand as well. And just like he was saying to them, basically, crown me or kill me, he's saying the same thing. To you and to I. He's saying, listen, I will come into your life as king or not at all. And the reason is because accepting Jesus as king is what produces life change. That is what is transformational. Because when we accept Jesus as king, we also give over control of our life. Giving over the control of our life is what produces the life change. That's when we start to see transformation in our life. Because here's the thing, we cannot accept Jesus in part. You can't have just some of Jesus. We cannot say, hey, Jesus, I want you to come in as my caregiver. I want you to come in as my wish granter. I want you to come in as my peacemaker, but I don't want you to come in as my king. We don't get to do that. When we accept Jesus, we accept all of him. And here's the thing. I think the reason that we struggle with this concept of accepting Jesus as king or or we respond like this um, is because we want Jesus to help us. It's not that we don't want the help. It's that we don't want to give over the control. And Americans especially are obsessed with controlling their lives, obsessed with it. We don't want a king because we don't want something or someone that is ruling over us or is controlling us. But here's the thing. Let me tell you a secret. You actually already have a king. We all do. It's true. You have already chosen something to be king of your life. And here's the thing. You can't even control the fact that you've done it because that's how you were created. We were created with something that's called a spiritual nature. And basically what that means is that we were created to crave something to crown. We were created to search for our life to have meaning and purpose. That is our spiritual nature. And there's this fantastic quote from C.S. Lewis. He's um, one of the most well-known theologians probably of our uh, modern day. Um, But he has this amazing quote in his book, Present Concern, and this is what it says. It says, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. Even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. about it for a minute, and maybe you know this or you've had experience with this or you don't, but when someone is starving to death, and I mean that literally, like I don't mean phys- I don't mean figuratively, like when someone is literally starving to death, they begin to crave things and even eat things that in a healthy condition they would never put into their body, or they would never consider eating, things that can even be poisonous for their body, but they're so hungry that they'll eat anything. And that's really what Lewis's point is in this quote. What he's saying is he's saying that, hey, we as human beings, we were created with a spiritual nature. We were created with the desire to live for something. And I personally believe that God intentionally created us that way because he put that in us so that we would desire relationship with him. But the problem is, is that we have this spiritual nature, and then we also have that pesky Adam and Eve problem from Genesis chapter 3. Where sin enters and comes in on the scene. But just because sin enters, that doesn't mean that we lose our spiritual nature. That just means now our spiritual nature has to work alongside or live and work in a world that also has sin as a part of it. And so when that happens, we start to find other things in our life to crown as king. But see, the thing is, we were never created to crown those other things in our life as king. So here's kind of what I want to actually get to this morning as far as here's the deeper question that I want to ask this morning. We've been talking about, what okay, what is Palm Sunday? Why did it happen the way that it did? And that's all important stuff to know. But but here's the deeper question that I want to ask this morning. It's what does Palm Sunday mean for me? What does Palm Sunday mean for you? What does Palm Sunday mean for me? Here's the answer. It's that Jesus is king, and I can't cannot know him fully unless I know him as king. So what does Palm Sunday mean for you? What does it mean for me? It means that Jesus is king, and listen, we cannot know him fully unless we know him as king. And unless you know Jesus as the one true king that came in humility— came as a peacemaking king, but ultimately did it so that he could be your king, he cannot transform your life. Because here's the thing, while he is patient and while he is loving, he is still the only true king, and he should be treated so in our life. And as long as we're crowning other things like our career, our kids, our family, our stuff, our status, our appearance, our reputation, our finances, whatever it may be for you. I don't know what everybody's is in this room. But as long as we are continually to crown that stuff over Jesus, we will never fully give Jesus the crown that he rightfully deserves. And here's the crown that he rightfully deserves. It's our whole entire heart. All of it. Look at verse 44. It says, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. And then I had you highlight or underline this particular part, but because you did not recognize the time of the Lord's coming for you. Now, what Jesus is talking about right there, um, just so you guys, so I'm not taking something out of context, but what Jesus is talking about right there is he's actually prophesying for the future of Jerusalem, how it's going to be a city that's destroyed. And he's saying it's because You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you because you didn't recognize me, that I'm here. But we are at risk of the very same thing that Jesus is talking to this crowd about, that Jesus is saying as he's coming in the city of Jerusalem. When we crown other things or even people in our life as king, We, just like everyone during Jesus' time, we run the risk of not recognizing the time in which God is calling us to something more, and the something more is Him. It's not necessarily an activity or an action. I think that's what we go to a lot of times, because honestly, it's much easier to do something than to hand over your entire heart to Jesus. But we risk missing that, we risk not recognizing that moment. So here's what I want to end with to today um, Today is that uh, I think that there's actually a miracle that happens in the account of Jesus' triumphal entry here in Luke that I think doesn't really get talked about very much or get skipped over. And it's probably because not everyone considers it a miracle, but I certainly do. And so I want to end on this today. Look at verse 30. It says, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. And I didn't ask you to underline this earlier, but I want you to do it right now. I want you to underline which no one has ever ridden, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, here's why I think this is a miracle. I don't know if you guys know much about colts that have never been ridden before. I surprisingly do. Um, I rode and showed horses all growing up. That was like my story sport of, of choice. And in the process of doing that, when I got to be um, a teenager, I had the opportunity to uh, do something that we call saddle breaking horses. So when they turned two years old, um, maybe a little bit before, but we would saddle break them. And I, I don't know every process of saddle breaking. I can just tell you the process that my horse trainer taught me. Um, and so this is what we would do. We literally put a halter like on the colt and walk it up beside a fence And I would be on the fence, and with the colt standing over here, I would put half my body weight on the fence, and then I would take one leg, and I would just put that leg over the back of the colt. Leave it there for a little bit, and then take it down, and do it again, and do it again, and do it again, until I could tell that that colt was starting to settle down a little bit. And then I would put a little bit more of my body weight on, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, until I'm fully mounted on the colt. And then either one of two things happened, I got bucked off, or the cult began to accept the fact that he was not going to be able to throw me off. But here's the thing, depending on that particular cult, this process could take weeks, even months. It just depends on kind of how stubborn that particular cult was. But here we see in this account right here that Jesus has brought a cult that has never been ridden before. Jesus is put on the colt, what Luke says, and he calmly and peacefully just rides into Jerusalem as if that colt has been ridden a million times before. And here's why. Here's why I think that that happened. Here's why I think that colt responded that way. It's because under the hand of the calm, humble, peacemaking king, Jesus, all things become what they should. the thing, some of you, you are exhausted from trying to be enough. Enough for your job, enough for your family, enough for your friends, you're burnt out and you're overwhelmed. And listen, I get it. I am coming out of a season like that myself. But here's the thing, the best thing that we can do is recognize that Jesus is our king. He's your king. He's not someone else's king. He is king for you. He made the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He started the Passion Week for you. And that when we crown him as the one true king in our life, that's when everything becomes what it should be. When Jesus is the sole crown king in our life, everything calms. And you were ultimately created to be who you, and you ultimately are who you were created to be. Now listen, that doesn't mean that life isn't hard. That doesn't mean that tough situations don't come about. We still live in a broken world. That just means when those things happen, we know who we've crowned as king. And we know that he's going to be a peacemaker in those situations we can have this unexplainable, what will be unexplainable to the outside world, calm and peace, even amongst chaos. Jesus riding into Jerusalem as the triumphal king that he is, it reveals his true identity as the Messiah, but it also reveals our true identity, who we should be, who we were created to be. And here's the thing if you don't know, what you maybe have crowned as king in your life? I think probably most of us do. But if you don't know, here's a quick little test for you. When you're in this like solitude and quiet, just alone with your thoughts, which I know is almost impossible in our society to do, but let's just say your iPhone dies and you don't have a charger and you don't have a car charger and you're alone with your thoughts, what's the first thing that you think about? the thing that you spend the majority of your time thinking about in those moments of silence. That's the thing you've crowned as king. Now listen, I'm not saying that it is easy to get to a place where in those moments of silence the first thing you think about is Jesus or the majority of your time you spend you think about with Jesus. I'm still working on that myself and probably will be. It's a long process but it's a great way for us to know not only what we're putting a crown on, but what's controlling us as well? Because unless we know Jesus Christ as king, listen, we can't really know him at all. And ultimately, we can't really know our true identity because here's the thing. You were created to worship the one true humble king, Jesus. That's what you were created to do. And that's actually what Palm Sunday is all about. Jesus is makes this first move that starts the first domino that he pushes that just knocks over all of the rest going into passion week he makes it the triumphal entry of a king because he's saying hey listen i am not just publicly saying yes i'm the messiah he's also saying i am your king i am the king of your life the only way to know me fully is to know that so i want to challenge you this week as you're going throughout this week is to stop and take moments recognizing as we're going through the Passion Week and thanking Jesus for what he did, but also asking the Holy Spirit to show you areas in your life in which maybe you have crowned king over the one true king, Jesus. And then asking the Holy Spirit to help you address those issues. Don't try to do it on your own. If you do, it's just going to be a very weak, failed like diet plan ask the Holy Spirit to help you address those issues and how can you hand control and hand kingship back over to Christ where it should be?